Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. And hello and welcome now to our ninth podcast. And we want to start off today straight away with thanking one of our listeners who left a positive review, a very positive review on, I think they call it Apple Podcasts, but I may, I may be wrong on that one. And, and we just wanted to thank Cole, I think was the name. Thank you very much. We're, we're delighted with that review. And of course, if anyone has anything positive to say, please do let us know. Yeah, thank you from all of us. And if you have any comments or ideas, of course, you're very welcome to contact us uh, on our email address, which is unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com. Okay, and today we have the fascinating case of Triple Point Technology and PTT. It's a long-awaited Supreme Court decision, um, and the five judges, I believe, were Lord Hodge, Lady Arden, Lord Sales, Lord Legat, and Lord Burroughs, um, with, I think it was Lord Sales dissenting, and Lord Hodge agreed uh, with him. Unfortunately, we didn't hear from Lord Burroughs, as we were saying in our pre pre-podcast meeting. But there we go, there'll be other opportunities. Although the case involved a software contract, which I must admit tends to send shivers down my spine, the facts in this case were actually fairly simple. PTT were um, to provide a software package to TriplePoint and they were to be remunerated at various key milestones of the project. The contract contained a liquidated damages clause. Uh, I think it was at a rate of 0.1% per day up to the total value of the contract up until the point that TriplePoint accepts such work. Now that's something that, that we'll come back to um, I think in our discussion. Now unfortunately PTT finished the first stages 149 days late at which point TriplePoint then terminated the contract and the issue that arose from, from that particular point was whether the liquidated damages clause were, well, first of all, capped damages entirely, i.e. they could only recover liquidated damages up to the limit of the contract price, or number two, whether the liquidated damages clause could run beyond the end of the contract, i.e. until they found a replacement or whatever. And the second issue that arose was to do with the wording of Article 12.3, um, which set out that the cap did not apply in the case of negligence. And the question before the court was whether the term negligence was to mean negligence in care and skill provided or whether negligence should take on a separate meaning provided in tort. So a really interesting points, I think, to discuss. Um, and shall we kick, up, we'll kick off with some general thoughts? Um, I'll kick over to Maggie, I think. What, what do you think? I have some difficulty with some of Lady Arden's analysis i suppose essentially i would say that um it's rather generous in terms of interpretation of that wording but i can see the force behind it it's a sort of pragmatic and, and practical uh, view of it because if if you look very closely at the wording a sort of literalist 
and that's where I think Lady Arden is trying to steer us heavily away from, would say that the wording is really only designed to impose liquidated damages if the work is done by the contractor, in this case, triple point, uh, <laughs> but is late. And so in a literal sense, it's arguable, and that's probably why it got to the Supreme Court, because uh, Severine, you were wondering why the hell did this get to the Supreme Court. It is arguable, therefore, that the clause doesn't apply at all if the works are never completed by triple point. And I suppose one could argue that, you know, liquidated damages clause is a surrogate for general damages, that general damages would apply by virtue of the law. If you want to craft something else, something different, something bespoke, then generally English contract law says that's fine. But you need to have pretty clear wording to make sure that a court would recognise, yes, you are trying to do something different, is the reason why it got to the Supreme Court. Somebody did argue uh, that the wording simply wasn't clear enough to apply on these, these particular facts. And Lady Arden uses rather probably quite a quaint phrase With that I haven't used yes. myself for 30 years, and I'm not sure if I've heard it, but she said, <laughs> oh, well, to construe it in that way would be to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes. <laughs> and that's a rather a, a quaint English phrase, but if I, if I try and translate it for people who may not have heard that sort of phrase, it's not used that often, I don't think, anymore. Um, I think what she's trying to say is uh, that would be to have an end result uh, which is uh, so extreme as to destroy the main purpose of what you're trying to achieve. In other words, when you're bathing the baby, you don't want to lose the baby. You want to throw the bathwater away. And, and if you're throwing both away, that is destructive of your, your entire core scheme. And, and so what she's trying to say is, all that wording is saying is the end point will be completion. Uh, so liquidated damages can't run beyond completion. But what it's saying is that doesn't mean that there are no liquidated damages if there is no completion. Just trying to nail down that absolute end point. Um, so, so I can accept entirely uh, two different ways you could read that. And the way of the majority is perhaps much more practical, pragmatic, realistic. I have a wee bit of difficulty just sort of intellectually uh, that, you know, if you're, as I've said at the beginning, if you're trying to cast something that is different from the general law, then you really need to sort of take care with the wording. And, and, it, and if you don't take care with it, it's not that they don't have any claim at all for damages. That's not true. Uh, it's just that they would have to prove the amount of the damages. Instead of having this uh, liquidated, is the phrase we use, liquidated damages, this precise sum that has been written into the contract, you have to damn well show what your daily rate of loss has been. Uh, and so the advantage to you is, is not having to go through that rigmarole and the difficulty of proof and perhaps not being able to prove any at all. So that's why I, I have some difficulty with it. I don't know what Severin thinks. Well, that sounds, that sounds to me like you're going with, I mean, Lady Arden gave us three options, didn't she, in, in, in what it could be. And I would, I would, that sounds like you're going with option one, which is the Glanstoff case um, of, of, in other words, the, the clause doesn't apply at all. Yes, we mustn't uh, run away with this case, I think, as being 
laying down very clear principles of law, which is probably coming back to Severing's point. Actually, it's not. It's it's, it's it's purely on the interpretation of the wording of this particular uh, case. So that Glasdorf case is again not a matter of principle. It's a matter of interpretation of the wording. And Mm. I suppose that's an interesting facet that came out of this case. The current vogue, if you like, or fashion, at least in the English probably Court of Appeal and Supreme Court now, is to start, if not end, with this is about interpretation of the contract. That has become a very powerful force behind many, if not most, of our contract law judgments at the moment. Let us answer this by understanding what the language is rather than uh, is there a new principle of law to come but out? But interestingly, of this? also the interpretation of the language in light of the party intention, rather than looking at the wording as you were saying and saying, well, actually, if you if you did want to do anything differently, you would have had to be more careful. So I thought that, and from that point of view, yes. Lady Arden was quite interesting. Severine, why don't yeah, you? Yeah, so us I think your... yes, you're right, Maggie. When I was reading the case, I was wondering why on earth did it come to the Supreme Court? You know, because it, I guess it's good. You've just mentioned the Glanstoff case. So I think one of the reasons why is suddenly, you know, appears to have been used by the Court of Appeal as really, really important, even though actually the parties didn't even mention it from what I understand. So I I suspect that's, you know, the main reason why uh, there was a need for clarification for a point of law. But yes, so I, I would slightly disagree with you, Maggie, in relation to as to whether that is a recent trend for, you know, using, you know, contract interpretation as the main, uh, as the main tool. It seems to me that it's always been there. Uh, I remember, you know, the first lecture in commercial law when I studied um, a few years ago now, the person taking the course, Professor Brigade, mentioning a case where it was the bread and butter of the high court. And so therefore, uh, the Court of Appeal. and, and, And so I, I think that's not really surprising that they have uh, gone on to the interpretation. So the, but it suddenly makes you think, and especially in the light of what you've said about, you know, throwing the baby with the bathwater, what is it that they are saying effectively? So, you know, my understanding is that the liquidated damage clause only applies up to termination and after that it's normal damages. That seems to make complete sense, a contract ends, you know, when a contract ends, you know, the contractual uh, obligation and what the contract says ends as well. So on that, that seems to be fairly uh, normal. No, I, Well, I don't know. Yeah. There's, there's an interesting point trying to get out of that one, actually. I think if you look very hard at what people were arguing in this case, nobody was contending that the damages ran beyond termination. The argument was whether this clause was engaged at all because of the wording of, of, yeah. of, the, of the contract. So it wasn't, strictly speaking, it wasn't an issue whether the damages continued to run into the future. Mm -hmm. And and it's actually your icon, Lord Leggett, who uh, sort of trails his coat, if I could use that phrase, as to that being a possibility that the damages could run beyond termination, even though, as Lady Arden is saying, well, the primary obligations, you know, she's going on about photo production, the primary uh, obligations have ended at termination. That's that's right. But that doesn't necessarily tell you that there can't be damages continuing 
beyond because a liquidated damages clause could provide for that. But Lord Leggett says, but very sort of low key because it wasn't really an issue. He says, oh, well, hang on, you'd have to look at causation. So the losses then might very well not have been caused by, in this case, the, the defendant, it would have been caused by, say, the new contractor who's, who's brought in after termination. So he's, he's using causation, which is quite sort of Hoffmanish, Hoffmanish, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you like, as, as a tool. And I think Lord Burroughs agrees with that. So that seems to be perhaps their thinking for the post-termination possibility. I don't know what you think about that. I think on the literal reading... I think there are only really two options here, and that that is, and I think in in that respect, Legat is is correct, um, and and actually Lady Arden mentions them as well. Is is that e- either the clause doesn't apply at all, or it applies beyond termination? On a literal sense, that is what the clause is saying, and is realistic. But as Lady Arden then concludes, and believe it or not, I agree with her. I think that cannot be what they had in mind. I think they had the liquidated damage clause in mind for a specific purpose. Now it's a bit odd to think that commercial parties of this side didn't have in mind that the contract could be terminated. I mean, I that, that, that is a little odd. Well, but... you know, that the whole thing wasn't very well crafted. No. So, so you, you wonder, you know, uh, quite what went, I mean, you know, it's, it's very uh, easy for us and for any courts with, with the benefit of hindsight to look back at contractual wording and say, you know, this yeah. is very badly put together. Um, but, you know, that, that's with the benefit of hindsight. When you know the facts as they are, perhaps it then becomes clearer how it should have been drafted, if that makes sense. Uh, but I suppose that's the point I was trying to sort of think in my mind at the beginning when you asked what I thought about this. If you looked at the the language there, the whole implication to me is that the parties just didn't comprehend the possibility of triple point not ever completing this yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. all that they had in their minds mm. when they were crafting this clause. That, that's why I have some problem. So it's sort of cr- almost creative judicial work to say, ah, oh, yes, well, it applies elsewhere. I think it's just the... When you look at, so it, it's regarded as a construction contract, even though as Tim said, it was for um, uh, software. But as Lady Arden said, it was not just software. It, you know, there were also some deliverables. So, you know, that is quite an interesting application of, you know, what we consider construction contract to be brick and mortar contract. But I guess it's because from what you can see in uh, Legat and in uh, Lady Arden, this is something which is, actually quite common in the construction industry. I have had a quick look at, you know, what was said uh, by practitioners and that clearly this is something which is a well-known problem (laughs) about, you know, the work not being completed. Uh, And of course, the one thing which we need to mention is the fact that it's the work being completed and having been accepted as having been completed Mm -hmm. by um, uh, uh, triple point. Uh, no, by PTT. Yes. PTT. Sorry, PTT. <laughs> uh, by yeah. PTT. So um, it doesn't help that one is TPT and the other is PTT. I know. <laughs> <does it? laughs> and so I think you know that is in in my little mind. You know, it makes sense. And but the fact that the question was never asked seems you know, or did it need to be asked? So yeah, it a bit of a unremarkable decision on that point. Damn, I've said it. Mm. 
<laughs> I, what I quite like was Lord Legat's um, uh, starting point to say, well, okay, what, what, have they, what have they inserted this liquidated damages clause for? And I think from that point of view, that's quite interesting, right? If we look at the other liquidated damages clauses that went before, MacDessy and so on and so forth, they were protecting another interest that is there. I could imagine, therefore, that we're, if we're reading it in light of what the purpose of the liquidated damages clause is for, it does give us a bit more insight in how it should then be applied in this sense. So in here, it does seem to be a form of motivation, not just a prediction of, of the damages, but a, a certain amount of motivation, right? a, daily, a, a daily rate, uh, a certain amount of mo motivation to keep, to keep going. Um, and so from that point of view... Well, here's the interesting line between a penalty clause and yeah. liquidated damages clause. Um, and uh, here's a good example of, of it being a bit loosely mm -hmm. drafted. Um, they actually use the word <laughs> penalty... <Yes. laughs> Uh, which is perhaps ill-advised, but you know the the Supreme Court have no difficulty in sort yeah. of waving that away and say, well, you know, it, it's everyone agrees that this is not yeah. a, a penalty uh, in the sense of, as, as you're mentioning, Mac Desi, uh, something offensive to English law as a matter of public policy because that is striding yeah. into punishment. And remember, we we can't do uh, that, students. We can't have a clause which is punishing uh, a defendant contract breaker. Uh, this is uh, geared towards compensation. So, in so far, unless of course it is a primary. Yes, but element. in so far as this provision is uh, enforcing uh, a contractual obligation and designed to uh, arrive at compensation, it's not offensive. It's not a penalty, and it doesn't matter what label you give it. So, I suppose, Tim, you're saying that the rate was devised in such a way as to incentivize or motivate triple point to comply. And I suppose, Severin, yeah. to sort of answer your point about why the hell did this get to the Supreme Court, I guess on the maths, on the money, as it were, there was a sufficient riding on this clause being enforceable yes. compared with what you'd be able to show by way of general damages that even Absolutely. making allowance for the very expensive QCs, etc., yeah. you were yeah. still ahead of the game if yeah. you were successful on this. So that's kind of, it all sort of stacks up that this was perhaps, yeah. uh, shall we say, a generous rate so far as the customer PTT is concerned, otherwise they wouldn't have gone the distance with this, would they? No, I think the incentive is clear. I think it's mentioned both by uh, Lady Arden and Legard, and that is, I guess, the core of the issue, if the contract is terminated before the work is completed, to what does the clause cover? And the idea that if it doesn't apply, then I think Legat, but also Lady Arden made the point that then there is no incentive on the contractor to avoid delays. And so that has to be wrong. But then on, on the other hand, if it does apply, it is regarded as in construction uh, contract, looking at what practitioners are saying, it the, the original employer, as it is referred to, pays for something that it is that a third party is in charge of. And so that, you know, then we have to 
always, as always, balance the interest, indeed, of not punishing the original employer for not completing the contract, and etc., etc. So these are the issues. The, mo- the that... motivation point was actually quite strong, I think, with Lord Leggett, because I think he was saying that if this clause didn't apply at all, then the contractor would have every incentive not to complete if he was in yes. difficulty. Exactly. To get Absolutely. out of yes. uh, get yes. out of this penalty, yes. if I put that in quotes, exactly. uh, completely, yes. and, and he found it's that absolutely. Uh, counter commercial, I counter suppose. Intuitive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, and, that, and I think that's quite compelling, isn't it? Yes. That is that is that is a very good point. Yes. I think he makes. Whether the parties ever thought of that yes. is a no. different question. Well, that's no. coming back to my um, my unease at the beginning. It, it's it's creative, <laughs> I think, yes. in a sense. To, to see the problems that I don't think these particular parties probably did see, do you think? Yeah, I, it, I mean, it, the, the creative point, I would agree in relation to, I mean, I, I was quite, sorry, I go on about Legat, but he did mention at some point that, that it was not right in law and injustice. So yes, maybe the court, you know, and whilst Lady Arden did refer to commercial certainty and commercial practice but so yes I probably would agree with you uh, Maggie that it is creative on this but it seems to refer to something that is clearly a problem in construction contracts so by solving it I guess that is yeah by solving it clearly I uh, suppose there are some lessons for practitioners and I'm not sure students would get much out of this but in terms of practitioners now you can look at this wording and it's a sort of wake-up call uh, to to try and improve the language that you use look at the problems that these parties got themselves into yes the supreme court dug the client ptt out of a bit of a hole here i think but you know forewarned is forearmed uh, that that people are coming uh, laterally and drafting these clauses as, as you're referring to severine that they are now take even further care to make sure that perhaps there are two clauses here uh, one for liquidated damages up to completion uh, on the assumption that it, it takes place and then for further clarity, Belt embraces a statement that liquidated damages will run, notwithstanding the termination of the contract at any point. Do you, do you see what I mean? That that's the way yes. practitioners operate, isn't it? To to yes. look at a case and think, okay, can we learn from somebody else's woes, yeah. as it were? Yes. Yes. Well, hopefully, yep. you know, it puts to bed an issue that seems to be prevalent in, in construction contract. But uh, Lord Leggett's argument about causation is is, is one yes. uh, to try and nail this down, that you, you're going to have a causation problem. Because as Severine, as you were saying, if a new contractor comes on to finish off what the outgoing guy has, has left in a mess. If there's any problems because of that new work, as it were, it hasn't been as a result directly, at any rate, causationally, or of the outgoing contractor. It is more in- indirect. Is it? Well, yes, because, well, that would be the argument, but because the incoming contractor, if there's still problems, as it were, the outgoing contractor will argue that these ongoing problems are not caused by my failing, 
They are now caused by the new guy that you have engaged. So you've got a causational argument between the, the new replacement contractor and the outgoing one in breach. That's what Leggett is trailing his coat. That's the phrase I use. That would be the argument that liquidated damages uh, might be a problem for any clause, however you craft it, because beyond termination, those ongoing losses, have they been, co been caused by the original party in breach? It's, it's just an argument. We don't know. We don't have a case on that point yet. But on the facts, on any new case, that there would be something to be argued about there, I think. That's what he's saying. Mm. Lady Arden didn't talk about that because it's strictly speaking, no, no. it wasn't an issue. So he's just left this hanging in the air uh, to say to <laughs> practitioners, hey, chums, you know, think about causation if this comes up in the future, because you might well have a, an argument on that score. Does that, does that sort of make sense? Have I made sense about yes, that? Yes, I... I suppose he also makes the, makes the point in, in line with that, that, that it would be depriving the parties entirely of the whole purpose of the liquidated damages clause yes. and, and knowing their financial exposure if it went beyond termination, which actually on, on that slightly related well, to that. It's about control, isn't it? He, he yeah. would be saying, how can the party originally in breach, in this case, triple point, have any control over what an incoming new contractor is doing or not doing? Yes, yeah, and and also of course True. that eliminates they, the whole purpose of of knowing what the damage is going to be because you know they're yes. not in control. Yeah, yeah, the, the yeah. certainty and predictability is lost. Yes, that's yes, that's the absolutely. main attraction, isn't it, of a liquidated yes. damages clause? Yes, yeah, that said, that said it much better. I I would yeah. like to, and and that brings me back to I made a little note, Maggie. I think it was, I should remember who was saying this, but one of you said at the beginning. <laughs> Before I get it wrong, uh, one of you said at the beginning that this is a quite a specific case and isn't really trying to create much of a principle. But actually, if we look That's at probably what, me. what Legat says, me. Sorry. I think I think it was. Um, I think what Legat says at the end, I think sounds to me like we're getting a principle. He's not at the end, at the end of his part. Um, paragraph 86, he says, I conclude that it is ordinarily to be expected that unless the clause clearly provides otherwise, a liquidated damage clause will apply to any period of delay in completing the work up to, but not beyond, the date of termination of the contract. Yeah, but that point is not an issue in this case. So he can't actually categorically say, hey, Joms, I have made a new bit of law. Here it is. No, but I think they think, again, I, I can't point at which point of, of their judgment, but I think both, well, especially Lega does mention that it's a really specific case and therefore it is not uh, raising the, I guess, the point that he makes on causation does give us food for thought, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is bound. So yes, it is very specific to this issue and this issue only, but clearly this is something which in construction contract has been ongoing for a while and therefore the point of causation does open the possibility of a general point of law. Yes, but it's also saying to practitioners, you need very, very clear language, I think. Yes, mm. yes. And, and you'll have some difficulties on a causation argument. Yes. It is possible, I suppose, to draft it so it has a very loose causational linkage required. But he's sort of flagging up to us to say, look, this is going to be difficult for you. Yes. 
And I think it will all go back to the commercial context because, again, all of them have said, you know, this doesn't reflect commercial reality and therefore that's why that interpretation by the Court of Appeal is not right. So here again, we open the Pandora box of contextual interpretation and whether it makes sense in that context. But I suppose that's an interesting thought too. I've only just thought of that. But to what extent judicial reasoning led by what practitioners assuming to be so is it that yes. way around is it that way around should it be that way around <laughs> ah well that that's, is, a, that's a that's a really in, oh now now is, we're getting to meaty stuff is this is a is contract law reflecting ah. reality or is it building principles and policy as we would like them in society oh wow maggie well, you've you know, opened up you a, know who, who's leading who i suppose is what i'm saying so again <laughs> going back to you know my commercial law days it was always clear that you know the debate of whether commercial contract facilitate or regulate commerce and you know the very famous decisions where it says that actually the law follows uh, the practice you know the law should yeah. facilitate and we see that in retention of title clauses and things like that so here with liquidated damage clause the something that is used very often in construction contract i would say it is practice raising a question which the law should listen to and give effect to as much as possible but without bending the general principles but the general principles should also take care of looking at how practice evolves i mean on a pure yeah so 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 could one say that the judges are for the gray areas of uncertainty but if it is commonly accepted approach that is going to be very very forceful yes in the in the mind of a court so it's almost resonant with do you remember lord stain reasonable expectation 20 30 years ago yeah we he all talked about yes yeah. the reasonable expectations it's, it's always that yep of businessmen and these yeah. days we'd have to add business women or business people uh, are a very forceful power behind a judicial reasoning. So if nothing else, this case il illustrates that. I, I suppose the court yeah. has the added difficulty that they have to they have to think about the doctrinal coherence yes. Um, yes. of these principles beyond just what is happening in practice. And I think that's probably their primary obligation is is ensuring that we have that coherence within the system and then the secondary question is okay and what what is actually happening on the ground and can we reflect yes. that yes. in the yes. law but i think it is is from that point of view the secondary yes. position yes. Yeah, no, I agree and with that. And to me, the fact that this is regarded as a construction contract, even though it's for software, even though, again, uh, Lady Arden, with the distinction of saying, you know, it's not just a software since there are deliverables upon which strict liability uh, applies for the defect. Yes, but I think that's more about that other point that Tim yes, wanted that goes us to, to talk the about, issue. That, that the, the, the limitation of I know, of that the, goes the to the second issue. Yeah. But nevertheless, it is interesting that this is classified as a construction contract and all the cases that were referred to were more much more traditional brick and mortar you know building of a bridge building you know so i think it is yeah me, but isn't, isn't that is... just because the parties have used 
the construction industry yes. model yes. or template. And yes. so, that you know, they've taken that on themselves, as it yes. were. So that is the, the approach the court's naturally yeah. going to give to it. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. That, therefore, that goes back to the question that you raised earlier, or Tim, that you raised in relation to, you know, what's... Uh, the law about so here it's just the, the 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 parties using something that is in existence that you know the 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 standard form for construction on contract because there is nothing else because arguably the the debate on you know what the status of software is still a problem in uh, English law generally speaking aside mm. the Consumer Rights Act but in B two B contract you know we still don't know. <laughs> so I, I think that is therefore the who leads who the, you know, the practice uses the tool that they can, but are those tools, but anyway, I'm digressing onto a, a different point here. Well, let's, let's jump right in, shall we, to that second, second point, because otherwise time will run away with us as, as usual. Let's, let's have a look at the whole idea of this, this wording negligence. Severine, do you want to start? What do well, you think? So, Again, it's something where you, when you read the decision, it, to me, that makes perfect sense that the, the word negligence cannot have a, a sui generis meaning, that it cannot exist on its own. And so again, these questions, it surprises me that they have never been asked before. So to me, the fact that the uh, Supreme Court considered that the word negligence also applies to breaches of uh, contractual skill and care makes perfect sense. But I can see that contractually, again, we can see that maybe the parties had something else in mind, so that the contract did give us a, 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 so many words for gross negligence and negligence, so making the distinction here. So it makes, to me, uh, of uh, the majority of the Supreme Court, makes complete sense, but I can also see, if I can edge my bet here, uh, in uh, the dissent of... Because uh... I'm about to disagree. Ah, good, good, good. <laughs> Ah. Yeah, me too. I'm, 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 okay, I'm ready okay, okay. to go. So <laughs> I will let you jump. But, you know, I can see if I can just have that on record that I can also see the difficulty of dissenting judgment of uh, Lord Sales. Oh, is it Lord Hodge? Tim, you disagree. You you say what? 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 Well, let me let me let me jump in. Yes, I'm I'm going to abuse my position as discussed today. Um, so one is generally we do give if if a wording has a, an accepted meaning, and this will come back, I think, on my second point to what Maggie you were saying right at the beginning. But if we have an accepted meaning of the word negligence, then surely that is the one that should apply. And if we take the context of this particular contract, it would tend to make sense. I think what the law is, or what the court is relying on here, is that actually they didn't take much care when they were drafting this contract. And the second point, which I think is quite compelling, and Maggie, this was yours at the beginning, I think, was they shouldn't have reused the word negligence. Right? That's not, not the word you would use here when you're talking about exercising skill and care. So I, I, I do have a lot of sympathy here for Lord Hodge and, and Lord Sales, of course, um, on 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 that point. Um, I suppose we ought to explain to students the sort of context of why why we're talking about this one word, because it's sort of, you know, we're, we're, we're plucking a word out of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, it, 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 
a student, a student reading point. this, you, you might have some difficulty with it. If I very quickly explain what it what it is, it may make more sense what we're going on about. Uh, it starts with the liquidated damages provision, and then it says there will be a limit of liability on the supplier triple point here. So the total liability of the contractor shall be limited to, and it has the wordings, the contract price. So that would that that's them trying to contain their risk. And that in principle is fine and that's part of the bargain. And so we don't approach this in any rigid or restrictive critical uh, view because the parties have arrived at that as part of their bargain and, and presumably the contract price reflects that limitation of damages possible. Uh, and uh, the, the third point that the Supreme Court decided was that the, the liquidated damages would be part of that overall cap. Um, but then the clause that we're now arguing about is there is an exception to the cap as it were. So we're putting back liability, which is a very peculiar way of doing it, I think, if you're a student. So you, f you first say that there is a limit of liability and then you say, ah, oh, no, but for Except the purposes of this <laughs> limit, uh, the following don't, don't apply. So we're putting back the possibility of unlimited damages. Obviously, you've got to be able to prove what your damages are for certain specified things. So sometimes people talk about an exception to an exception, which is a bit peculiar, yes. but you see where, where I'm going with this. And that's why we're going on about the word negligence, because the the putting back of unlimited liability was for a little string of, of things, as it were. The first one was fraud. Well, I stop and think, well, actually, that's a very serious thing, actually. So it would be yeah. a rarity, hopefully. Uh, fraud is deceit, is lying. Yes. Uh, and, and naturally, this is the realm of tort law, not contract law. Now we're getting sort of closer yeah. to, hang on, can we understand this word negligent? Uh, and then it goes negligence. Now that's Severine's point and Lady Arden's point. Uh, that negligence actually, in common speak, is a very broad thing and basically means carelessness. Yes. And so that might be carelessness, contractual carelessness, as well as carelessness that the taught, taught law, uh, you students, second year students doing that, uh, you, you would be studying that now. And then it has gross negligence which is an extreme form of carelessness, if you like. And then it ends with willful misconduct, which is quite a serious thing to allege because you've intentionally misperformed. Now, this is where I disagree, I think, with all due respect to Severine and Lady Arden. I like the way I you think... put me before Lady Arden. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you're here and you might hit me, whereas Lady Arden doesn't know who the hell I am. I can't. Uh, not cares even less. I can't Quite you. understandably. Um, but Lord Sales and Lord Hodge, I think, is a much more sophisticated argument here by looking at the way in which this clause came into being. So they've looked at the context and, and we know from construction of a contract, interpretation of a contract, actually context, I, I'm not sure I'd say king, but is very mm -hmm. important. So they looked at the history of this and they said, ah, oh, this clause started with just the words fraud, gross negligence, and willful misconduct. And then at some point in the negotiations, they put 
the word negligence in. And so trying to work out what the hell was going on here, they were saying fraud is naturally taught. Yes, nobody would argue Mm -hmm. about that. Gross negligence, they're saying, well, that's got to mean something more than pure negligence. Otherwise, there's no purpose to the word gross. So Lord Sales, Lord Hodge say this this is contract mm-hmm. and tort, okay? And then the word willful misconduct is naturally more contract. To willfully misperform, we are naturally looking at contract law. But to put negligence back in and to give the, the meaning to that word and only that word, we think that's talking about tort, but only tort. Do you see where I'm going with that? So so to have this unlimited liability, it would have to be something arising from fraud. You couldn't show that. Or something arising from gross negligence, which is a severe form of lack of care, whether taught or contract, and they couldn't show that. Or willful misconduct, that is sort of intentionally breaking the contract, intentionally fouling things up. They couldn't show that. So they were backed to negligence, but negligence means only taught type of negligence. So you'd have to find some taught-based wrong that the software suppliers, triple point, have, have failed to deliver, as it were. And they couldn't find anything on these facts. Ergo, this clause didn't bite, wasn't engaged on these particular facts. That, I think, is what the minority were arguing. And, and I personally, I can see the force behind that. I don't know what One you think. One point, about though, that. that Lady Arden, I think it was Lady Arden, said quite nicely was that they couldn't actually find any examples of negligence. Yeah. Well, uh, Lord Sales disagrees. Yeah. I think he, he, he thought that there were examples as to whether breach of a taught nature. Uh, was actually very likely, uh, and and so they were asking counsel for examples of, of when when you when you think or when your client thinks that that might uh, might have arisen. So if there is no possibility at all, that is perhaps undermining uh, an interpretation of a word. But you know, I suppose there's an answer to that too. You know, when people are crafting these contracts. They will try and think of the most likely consequences or occurrences, but they won't necessarily have every conceivable thing in mind. And there is a tendency when you're drafting to draft on a sort of what I might call belt and braces basis. You know, you haven't thought of an example yourself. Nevertheless, for completeness sake, you put that word in in case the unforeseeable happens and you've got a word that covers it. So the fact that they can't find or think of any examples, I'm not sure that that takes you a hell of a way. No, no, that's yeah. true. I mean, the, the point that you were referring to, Tim, as to the example, it's, I think mm. it's on the, on the point of what would happen on the first point, and that's a paragraph 82 of Lord Legard. So I think that is slightly different. But again, it, it all goes back to what is the meaning. So I am convinced by Lady Arden says that it doesn't have an independent meaning. And to me, the fact that surely it includes a negligent breach of contract makes uh, sense. 
But would it have been different then, Severin, if I play with you for a minute? Um, if if the draftsman had used a phrase that I might naturally think of myself as lack of reasonable care. Yeah. And if they had chosen mm. that or used that anywhere else in the contract, because remember we shouldn't really look at simply one clause, we should True. look at the whole thing. Yeah. If they if they've used that construct somewhere else, that is an indication that the draftsman thinks Absolutely. about it being different. So even though always say to students, you know, what is negligence? It's carelessness. So by the fact that yes. there is an obligation of care of using kill and care in performing the obligation, if you don't do it, it's carelessness. Here, I think it was very clear that Triple Point had a, a lit litany of failing to give, you know, enough people for the contract, etc. So they were careless. Therefore, clearly, they were, to me, there is a negligent breach of contract. They haven't given it everything that was necessary to perform the contract. Therefore, here, by the fact, so to me, I will reverse what you said, by the fact that can you find, can you give me an example of an independent negligent example that it is negligence has an independent meaning? Well, people were playing with the idea, I think, I don't have the judgment in front of me, but things like, for example, uh, one of the employees for uh, Triple Point, the software company, might have been on site for the, yeah. for the client and done something that would be recognisable as, as a wrong so far as tort law is concerned. So perhaps they are attempting to fix somebody's computer or th they drop a stepladder or tool on somebody's head, you know, that they are more naturally taught and only taught. Are you with me? I think that they did make the point of, you know, whether it is, so I think it's Lady Arden who makes the point that actually it is conduct in the contractual performance. But here you are saying that it's not linked to the performance of the contract. Well, that the contract gives the opportunity for someone to breach an obligation which tort law would recognise, but the contract is not required for the completion of the tort law cause of action. So, uh, for example, I am an employee of Triple Point and I'm on site uh, of the customer's premises and I do something which causes damage or harm to someone else while I'm on site. The fact that there is a contract between my employer and the customer gives me the opportunity of being on site, but it is not really the cause of, of, of my failing, as it were. My failing is a purely a taught one. I run someone over in the car park driving into the customer's premises that morning, for example. But you wouldn't say you that have... was a contractual lack of care, would you? You would say that was a breach of a taught law obligation uh, that a motorist owes to a pedestrian. Okay. I'm thinking off the top of my head here. But Lady Arden yeah. would say, and you would say, Severine, ah, oh, but that's a fanciful example. No, 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 not necessarily. <laughs> I'm trying to think on my head in relation to, 
you know, causation and vicarious liability and all that. So Yes, my, my employer would have vicarious liability for me. Yeah. But as soon as you start using that language, vicarious liability at me, Severin, I'm thinking tort law. And I suppose, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking off the top of this, this is not scripted and not thought through. So this, this may go nowhere. None of this is scripted. We hope it's thought through, but it's not scripted. My, we're clearly not scripted. <laughs> well, that's either. true. There's nothing, nothing here is scripted. <laughs> We've had um, excuse, thank um, you. Oh, dear. <laughs> Um, all those cases that you've mentioned, Maggie, would sound like they would be they would be insured against. Oh, well, insurance is an entirely different matter. Well, but no, because that could go to the intention of why that's in there, right? In 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 terms of drafting the contract, that would be something that you would foresee, right? You would say, okay, this is something that we can take liability for because, well, we know we're insured for it anyway. Uh, well, you could possibly say that about most of the clauses that are about liability. They may, if they've been thinking about it, have thought about, well, what is possible in terms of insurance and what is possible in terms of the uh, the risk, the allocation of risk. It's very difficult, I think, to get insurance for bad performance of your own contractual performance. But that's it. So that's why that would that would strengthen your case for saying, yes. well, actually, in, in the, the, the negligence in the kind of strict negligence sense can go beyond the cap because we've got another contingency. In other ways, you know, we're all within this this whole, this is part of the financial planning of the whole project, right? The negligence element is Well, they, they would have had to have come up with some evidence that supports that sort of background matrix, as it were. This explains the genesis of the language used in this clause. I, I don't think anybody went that just because I didn't go there doesn't make it doesn't yeah. make it part of of the drafters of the drafters <laughs> no. planning. You know, if, no. if you think about that clause, okay, Ford Ford would probably not fall within yeah. that. Yeah, okay. But you could see why someone would go beyond. So the naturally, cap if if they knew that that was covered. Well, you see, you look at yeah, but you look at the language of that clause that is putting liability back beyond the amount of the cap. And if you ignore the word negligence for a minute, what they all the uh, the rest have all in common, I would say, is, is very serious yes. misperformance of in some sense. These are serious things to allege: fraud yep. uh, and gross negligence, willful misconduct. That you know, they are extreme things. So you know, I, I'm not sure you could use the phrase that we use with legislation about justum generis. My Latin's not up to it, Severin. You, you will know uh, what no, I mean. Don't, don't look at me like that. <laughs> I, <laughs> meaning, my Latin. <laughs> meaning, if you've got a string of words that are sort of united together in this way, um, they take their colour and meaning from one another. Yes. And it's negligence that is the odd man or woman out here, if you understand that that sort of phrase. It, it, it is, it's a peculiar one because all the others are very extreme forms of behaviour. And then when you put the negligence back in, it's almost like you've suddenly changed direction, suddenly changed gear. And, and that, I think, is why a lot of the difficulty was had here. I wonder whether it is... So we, we know the contract took about six months to be negotiated. And I suddenly right. wonder whether uh, suddenly they remembered, oh, yes, in my contract law days, I was taught that, you know, if you want to exclude negligence, you'd better put it in. Um, I don't know. No, so, no I, don't I don't think, think we we'll will. Ever know. So that that leads us really to to whether or not we think this case was correctly decided. Uh, Severine, what do you think? Yes, 
<laughs> right, short. that's that. That's. <laughs> I agreed. I agreed all the way with Lady Lady Harden, so I can't say it was wrongly decided. And, and Legat, you're always going to agree with I, anyway. I suppose I am. I am more lukewarm. I am more lukewarm in my uh, approval, or uh, and, and I actually prefer, I think, the approach that Lord Hodge, Lord Sales took to that. That, that exception or the exception to the exception. So, yes, on, on, on balance, a grudging yes. <laughs> a grudging yes. Well, I think with a grudging yes is, is probably how we can end most of our podcasts. To our listeners, of course, thank you very much for listening. Um, our next podcast is going to be our 10th podcast. And I think we know which case we're going to be uh, Is that on. the economic duress, I think? I've got oh, yeah. It, I think it is. Yeah. Pakistan International Airlines. We've been waiting for that for some time. Yes. So that'll be our 10th podcast. Do tune in for that. Thank you very much for listening. And if you do want to get in touch, of course, do email us. You'll find our email in the description below and packing.contract.law at gmail.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.